0: The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast.
1: Welcome to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Whether you're a thalassemia patient, a caregiver, a partner, or provider, this podcast is meant for you. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo. And on each episode, Thalpals, the Alpha Beta Revolution, will strive to provide listeners with critical education, the latest scientific updates, and voices from the greater global community of people who are impacted by thalassemia. So a little bit about myself. I was born with a really bad jaundice and was under the light for days. I was later diagnosed with a deficiency in my red blood cell. Though I'm normally not anemic, I'm prone to hemolysis, or the breaking of red blood cells, triggered by certain food or drugs. There was a lot of confusion as to what kind of food or drugs can trigger the hemolysis, and still is. My pediatrician was confused, and certainly my parents were very much confused. They searched high and low for more information, but even in the age where there was no internet or Google, it was still very difficult for them to separate the signal from the noise, to reconcile what information was based on evidence, and what were simply claims, anecdotes, or opinions. They also didn't know others who have the same blood disorders as me. So they felt like there was no one to turn to for help or questions beyond our trusted healthcare professional. But as many of you talking to your healthcare professional is vastly different than say, talking to someone who has the same condition as you. And all this in a blood disorder, that's nowhere as complicated or as difficult to treat as thalassemia. My goal with this podcast is to lend voice to people who have been touched by thalassemia to serve as a medium to connect the thalassemia community across the globe. I also wanted to help the audience dissect the latest advances in thalassemia in an evidence-based fashion. Finally, I want to learn with you and from you on what is meaningful and important to those who've been touched by thalassemia.
0: Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com.
1: I'm honored to be hosting this podcast and I'm looking forward to candid conversations that I have with patients, caregivers, as well as providers. Today, my guests are Louise Levine and Kelly Gilroy. Larisse is a patient advocate living with thalassemia, and Keely is a thalassemia medical director.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm really excited to be here as well. Thank you.
1: Excellent. So you're our first guest, so I love to hear why you think this podcast could be valuable to the greater global thalassemia community. Larisse, let's start with you.
2: Okay, thanks, Dr. Quo. Um I think that especially after the last two years or three of COVID and isolation. And in general, I feel like patients and even physicians, we're all operating in silos. And I think coming together in different venues is important, especially when we can't all be together in person. And so listening is a way, something we can all do no matter where we're at. And I feel like it'll be a connection. And I feel like we'll, we'll learn that we have more similarities than differences. And the only way we can advocate for ourselves is by getting to know each other and figuring out what the needs are in the community.
1: Thank you. And Keely, what about you? Why do you think this podcast could be important?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting,
3: Larice, when you brought up COVID and the isolation with that, because I wasn't thinking specifically about COVID, but I was thinking about how one of the things I've learned is that the thalassemia community is an incredibly global community. I think more so than any other area that I've ever worked in before. And so I think the opportunity to, to make those connections across the globe, particularly coming out of COVID, where there has been so much isolation. It's just really, I think, an incredibly powerful tool to help bridge connections between both the patient as well as the medical community. And I think I'm really excited about this as well, because I've seen this done before. Our advocacy team and Holly John has done this for sickle cell disease in a podcast called Cheat Codes, which has been tremendously successful. And also recently with a new one called, Just Listen, The Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. So if we can do something like this for thalassemia that's specifically tailor-made to the unique needs and interests of that community, I think it would be fantastic. I'm really excited about this.
1: This sounds great. So it sounds like we're doing a lot of firsts here, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I think the common yeah, the common theme here is to connect between everybody. I think it's these are very valuable reasons why we're doing this. So Laurice, what has your personal experience been with the thalassemia community?
2: I went the first twenty-five years of my life not knowing a single patient, never met anyone else that was touched by thalassemia. So I was very isolated. And I'm dating my, this is before Google and the internet and all of that. So it was really, really hard. And when my health took a turn at 25 and there were a lot of changes in my life, I did, I found the Cooley's Anemia Foundation and they connected me with my first patient that I met. I was, I felt like it was like a rebirth that day. It was amazing. So I met her and then she got me involved with their patient group at the time called Thalassemia Action Group. And I've been involved ever since and volunteering with coolies and volunteering with another patient group out here in California, Thalassemia Support Group, and run by another patient and his family, Paul DiLorenzo. So I've been involved with them. And and then I as a profession I worked in thalassemia advocacy for more than 20 years.
1: Amazing. So again, this creating shared connections is so important.
2: Yeah, and I think the oops, no, 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 the fact that this is like patient, medical and industry, all of us joining together to do this effort, this podcast, I really think is amazing too, because there are so many connections and I, and this is led by industry. And I want to say that industry in the past has gotten a bad rap pharmaceutical industry, but you know, Agios, a patient just said the other day leads with their heartstrings And so I think it's, and not their purse strings, I think it's really wonderful that bridging that gap.
1: Again, it's about breaking down the silos. Very much so, isn't it? Very good. And so, Keeley, so what sort of trends are you seeing from the thalassemia community standpoint? I mean, obviously the theme of connectiveness is emerging here, but anything else?
3: Yeah, it's thinking about from a more of a healthcare provider standpoint, right? One of the things that that you and I have talked about a lot before, Kevin and Larissa, I think we've talked about this as well, is there's quite the spectrum of kind of knowledge and awareness when it comes to thalassemia. I, I think on the one end, there are a handful of experts across the globe, and I count you among that group, Kevin, who are highly knowledgeable, very motivated, very, very active and engaged. And I think the community members who have the opportunity to be seen by this group of experts have phenomenal care. But not all patients have access to specialty centers, and they're not all being seen in, in places like that. And especially, I think, the patients who don't receive regular transfusions, many of them are not even seen by a hematologist. is something that we're learning. And so the awareness and education needs on that level, you know, it's just quite different. So if they're being seen by an internist or a general practitioner who may have seen one or two patients with thalassemia their entire career— they're not getting the same level of care. So I think that one takeaway for me is that there's a lot of need still for more awareness and education among the healthcare community and also more need for equity and care as well. Getting back to that global theme, there's quite a range in the access to resources and care from region to region and country to country. And I think it's really important to think, how do we address those gaps and unmet needs in in areas where there are extremely limited resources. And Larissa, I remember you telling me about certain areas where patients have to find their own donor for a blood transfusion. So things like that have just been really eye-opening to me and just really highlighted for me the significant amount of remaining need and work to be done. Um, so that's my take, I think, from a kind of a healthcare perspective. Larissa, I think you could probably speak better and more about from the c- the patient community.
2: Keely, you hit on wonderful points, access. And where thalassemia is most prevalent, they have the least amount of resources. And we're talking blood, just enough blood and blood o- blood transfusion that as a therapy isn't sustainable. And that's where you all come in with your research. But they can't even get enough blood or safe blood or testing. Or I know that in India, they were fighting for nat testing and in the U S we're fighting for safe for fresh blood. So the expiration date's important. I mean, that is a luxury and they just want blood that doesn't have, isn't laden with disease. And it's just so stressful, but this is where connection comes in and advocacy uniting with, the global community, so we can all raise our voices and educate about the need for new therapies and novel treatments.
1: These are all very important, in fact, pressing issues that we're all facing as a community today. Just as I find it funny that you call me one of the experts because I really see myself as a learner in thalassemia. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm learning with my patients every day. And as we break down, as we continue to break down the barriers, as we continue to break through in therapeutics as well as in the understanding the biology behind thalassemia i feel like i'm still learning every day it's and so i'm not sure that i'm the expert but i'm definitely a little you're an th-
3: expert in my eyes because <laughs> i've learned so <laughs> yeah. much from you it's all relative right
1: maurice tell us about your personal story of thalassemia
2: okay i was born in 1972 to italian parents my mom's part irish And my mom found out she had the thalassemia trait when she was pregnant and got a little bit anemic with her first child. And they tested my dad and said he did not have the trait. And I still have the letter saying you won't, you're not at risk of having a child with thalassemia major. Five kids later, I'm born and I was, it was 14 months that I was diagnosed. So I don't know if it was like the yearly checkup, but I was just basically pale and not gaining weight, not thriving. That could be so many things, but the pediatrician actually knew my mom was a trait carrier and they ran tests. So I was diagnosed and given the diagnosis of thalassemia major, but not put on blood transfusions, which isn't the standard of treatment, standard of care. They re- In the meantime, they retested my dad. Of course, he has the trait, but it just didn't show up. They were told that I wouldn't survive past the age of 13. I was not put on transfusions which really means I have thalassemia intermediate. My hemoglobin was 6.9 and my spleen was huge. I was very sick as a child. I got besides just severely anemic with a hemoglobin of 6.9 and an enlarged spleen. I was got infections all the time. So my hemoglobin dropped to 3 when I was 9 and I had heart failure, congestive heart failure and given my first blood transfusion. And my hemoglobin went back up to seven. They took out my spleen, which was 12 pounds a few months later. It was huge. It was like a football. So needless to say, being jaundice and pale and having a huge spleen, I was terrorized as a child. So it was a tough childhood, although it didn't really stop me. I went to, I was very academic driven because I couldn't do sports. And so... My, I knew where I wanted to go to college when I was like 13 years old. So I worked towards that. I went to UC Davis. And after I graduated, I was teaching preschool for two years. And I was I got another episode of congestive heart failure. And my doctors at the time said, you need to choose some therapy for thalassemia. And I'm like, give me some options. I was very sick, told that if I didn't do something, I would, wouldn't make it to 30. I was already past my expiration date of 13. But at 25, I commenced routine blood transfusions and I started getting blood every five weeks. I think I got one or two here in California. Then I moved, I got a scholarship to Syracuse University. And my doctor encouraged me to go, even though I was pretty sick and I was just started treatment. But I moved to New York and my hematologist there, I was his first. And only thalassemia patient, but he spent so much time with me, getting me on the right track. I started chelating and getting blood. I, it was every five weeks, then four, now then three, and now it's every two weeks, because I didn't like the way I felt that third week. The transfusions have kept me stable. I've had complications, blood clots, infections, and osteoporosis, and pain is my main issue, but. I'm doing great. I got my master's degree and I'm, I work and I'm married. I've been married 17 years and have a six-year-old. So I'm fulfilled and happy. It just, I just spend a lot of time on care.
1: Amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And given what you just talked about, you essentially you embody the history of development of thalassemia as you grew up we also as a community I felt like we also grew as well with you things that we have learned from the time when the doctors were telling you that you only have can only live to 13 all the way to 30 and now here you are still thriving and it's I think it's it's a testament to how much we didn't know before and still how much we don't know still but it also is a testament to much we've learned again with all the patients with thalassemia so thank you Mm -hmm. for sharing that
2: well thank you for all the contributions you've made too that's why i'm still here is because of contributions from the medical and scientific community you're welcome industry partners developing new therapies i'm on all the chelators and that never existed when i was that's why i was given 13 because they didn't have chelation so
1: thank you so from that what would you like to see from this podcast as in what do you see meaningful to you as a patient?
2: The most disturbing thing is I feel like I am no more deserving of good care because I am born in the United States. And we are so blessed with quality care and technology and safe blood. And I want that for every patient on earth. And so. My goal is to become as aware as I can about global issues, connecting the patient community so that we can speak together and advocate for ourselves because new therapies aren't going to get approved if there, if, pay, if there aren't payers. I mean, it is the business model and people aren't going to see the value in paying for something if they don't know what the issues are. And so as patients in the community, we have to educate everybody. And so to improve access where it's needed most, that's what I want. That's my dream.
1: Thank you. So Keely, from a clinical perspective, what are the topics that you see that requires most awareness?
3: One of the things about this podcast that I'm really excited about is the opportunity to raise awareness across the full spectrum of thalassemia. And I think that's really highlighted by the name, where Holly's worked really ca- hard to incorporate both alpha and beta into the title. I, I think, and for me and Kevin, that I have a personal passion, particularly around this area. I'm really excited to raise awareness for alpha thalassemia and hemoglobin H disease, hemoglobin Bart's. This is something I think that historically has been more common in the southeastern Asian area, but. But now with us being a global community and people moving all across the world, it's becoming more common everywhere. As I've learned more about thalassemia, I have been shocked to see not only lack lack of awareness or a need for an awareness there, but also just a need for data. I'm stunned by how few studies have been performed to fully characterize alpha thalassemia. And so I think any opportunity, and not to say that I don't think beta is important, they all are, but I think that's a particular area where we need not just more education and awareness, but also more research to be completely honest. So I think that, and then also, you know, what I guess what we refer to as non transfusion dependent thalassemia. From conversations I've had, I think historically this has been perceived as a, less severe kind of condition because patients with non-transfusion dependent don't require regular transfusions to survive. But I think we're understanding now, though, that doesn't mean that there's still not a need for good care and management and monitoring. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done there as well from an awareness and education perspective. I think we actually have more data and more research there to back that up, but I think it's just more the awareness there that could be or needs to be addressed.
1: For sure. And so then I'm gonna ask, actually, both of you, Lori's and Keely, looking forward to the next few years, what do you see would be the changes in terms of thalassemia care? So let's start with you, Lori's.
2: Oh, it's so exciting. The changes I've seen in my lifetime in just the last like 15 years have been monumental. Maybe it's 20. I lose track of time. And we're on the cusp of like curative therapies therapies for neglected areas such as NTDT, non-transfusion dependent, and alpha. I agree with Keely. There needs to be more data and more research. I mean, I I talk to trait carriers who have hemoglobins of seven or eight. So obviously something else is going on and they're really suffering. So I feel like we're going to see changes for the non-transfusion dependent and alpha thalassemia family um, and curative or one-time treatments to reduce transfusion burden. It's exciting. I tell parents of like infants that were with thalassemia and they're worried about their child surviving and thriving. That is, they, they don't even know what a desferal pump is, mm-hmm. which is amazing. They're going to probably cure it in their lifetime, so it's exciting.
1: And how about you, Keely?
2: I think similar
3: to Larice, I'm optimistic, hopeful that we will. Continue to see improvements in care over the coming years with a number of new therapies that are in clinical development, including curative therapies, which is incredibly exciting, and also efforts such as this podcast to help increase awareness and understanding. I'm hoping that this will help foster greater communication between patient and healthcare provider communities and help to bring ultimately help to drive better care as well. I, again, I think though, it still comes back to this. We keep, this global thing keeps coming back as these improvements come out and new therapies still, I think it's still important to think about how do we get access to all of the areas and the geographies in need and not just places like the United States where we have great care, but the other places. And Larissa, as you mentioned, like some of the places where the patients are most in need where there's very limited access to resources. So I think that's something we need to continue to think about and talk about how to address that need, that very
2: significant
1: need. Thank you very much today. I wanna thank both of you for joining us. Thank
2: you so much, Dr. Quill.
1: You're welcome. It's my pleasure. (laughs) That is all for today's episode. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Quill, and I'd like to personally thank you for listening to Thou Pals, The Alpha Beta Revolution. Don't forget to hit the follow button in your favorite podcast apps so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the thalassemia community. ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution is made possible by Agios Pharmaceuticals. Visit agios.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Kevin Quill, and I'll see you next time on ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution.